This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Joining me today are Drs. Anand Iyer and Nick Dion Odom, who co-authored a paper entitled, A Formative Evaluation of Patient and Family Caregiver Perspectives on Early Palliative Care in Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Across Disease Severity. And this paper was published in the Annals of ATS uh, in August of, of this year. So by way of background, Dr. Iyer is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and an associate scientist for the Center uh, for Palliative and Supportive Care at UAB. And Dr. Dion Odom is from the School of Nursing at UAB, where he's an assistant professor and co-director of the Caregiver and Bereavement Support Services at the UAB Center for Palliative and Supportive Care. The point of discussion today will be the role of early palliative care in patients with COPD from the perspective of not only the patients, uh, but their caregivers. Very interesting topic uh, and really one that's very relevant for care of pulmonary patients across the country. So, so welcome and thank you, Drs. Iyer and Dion Odom for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right, so let's jump right in. So I was hoping that, that um, you could provide some background about your interest in palliative care and COPD and how your study uh, evolved and developed. Well, yeah, uh, Dr. Chino, it's, it's, is there anything, uh, a lot of this starts clinically where we see what we see in the clinic setting and the intensive care setting as fellows and as doctors caring for these patients. And oh, time and time again, I noticed that a lot of my patients with COPD were ending up in the intensive care unit on ventilators and having had no discussions about their outlook planning, their symptoms beyond their breathlessness. And it kind of percolated in my mind. It was like, what is going on? Why aren't they having uh, early planning about their end of life care? And it evolved as, it, as things naturally do into research questions and this study in particular when I teamed up with Nick and Marie Bakaitis from our palliative care center, who's our senior author on this paper, to actually ask these questions, develop an intervention, and have a global research program about this. And yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, many times the, the best studies and the most, uh, the studies that contribute most are those that come from a clinical question at the bedside, isn't it? Um, That's exactly right. So again, just to get us on the same page, so what's the definition of, of palliative care in general, and what do you mean by early palliative care? Okay, so a lot of this comes from the oncology literature. Um, so palliative care, let's think about this as comprehensive, supportive care that provides physical, emotional, spiritual support for the patient and their family, and it's appropriate at any point along a disease trajectory for somebody who has a serious illness. Early, the early concept, again, is something we can talk a little bit more about, but it, uh, it goes down to when in the disease course is it appropriate and, and or is it proactive before the end of life. So it's, it's all about comprehensive supportive care for patients and their families. Yeah, I think my perspective about what makes palliative care early, you know, palliative care initially began as an inpatient service that mostly saw patients and families who were critically ill oftentimes within days to weeks of death. And early palliative care attempts to insert itself much earlier on 
in the course of a serious illness, uh, which you could probably die from uh, or with, um, but in the sense that earlier on, palliative care is able to do many more things uh, than it is if it's coming in late into the game of a, of a patient and family's illness trajectory. And so early palliative care, for example, in cancer begins at diagnosis of an advanced metastatic or high symptom burden disease. And that's uh, based on ASCO um, clinical opinion statement. And in heart failure, it's when one is diagnosed with stage CD heart failure. And so upon diagnosis with that, that's sort of the trigger in that uh, disease trajectory for early palliative care. And so in C COPD, I, I think that question, and Anand can jump in here about what the gold statement say, states, um, but I believe it's, it's early on in diagnosis of that disease trajectory. Is it CD? Yeah, it's, it's still a question. I think it's a more so advanced COPD. Um, even some of the COPD specialists equate palliative care you know, you, Nick and I have talked about this a lot, that it's oftentimes considered synonymous with hospice care or end-of-life care only. And so advanced COPD or end-stage COPD, which would be gold C or D, or gold three or four, which is very severe or very severe COPD, that's often when things are started to begin consideration. And that might be closer to what you're talking about for heart failure. That's not necessarily early to me. Um, the fact that it's being done that late is still pretty late. And that's kind of what the study touches on. Uh, but Gold does mention it can be done earlier than in the last day where your FEV1 is 20%. Um, and, and, you know, it, it makes sense to, to look at COPD because, the, as you said, it's a disease with um, a lot of symptoms, a lot of impairment of quality of life, and, and really a, a large clinical burden, not only on the patient, but also on caregivers. So it, it's, it really is, I think, uh, a disease state, and given its commonality, um, it's rife for this kind of research. So, uh, Anand, I'm glad you brought up the issue of, of palliative care being synonymous or being thought to be synonymous with hospice care. So, um, what is the difference between palliative and, and, and hospice care? So, if you can distill it to the, we know that there's a lot of overlap, but so where does palliative care begin and where does the hospice spectrum uh, begin in that, in, that, uh, in that setting? I had a palliative care a physician talked to me about this, and they said simply, um, all hospice care is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice care. Um, so hospice care is typically something seen as very terminal in the terminal phase of an illness. A clinician has decided you're in it, you might have a prognosis that is six months to live. Um, it is care that's provided for a patient, so it's not anything like giving up as the typical perspectives are from patients, families, clinicians that we're throwing in the towel and giving up. Rather, it's a different type of care focused on comfort and quality of life for the patients and their caregivers for bereavement, support, et cetera. Palliative care is that sort of chronic, supportive, comprehensive care provided much earlier than that. You could still, as Nick said, die from this illness. It is still serious, but the time frame is not the same. So to me, it's often a clock that's different. So you can start at much more than six months to live. It can be a year, two years, three years before that. Nick, any thoughts? Yeah. One additional point to build off that is that palliative care and cancer and heart failure um, can be offered at the same time that one continues to receive curative intent treatments or disease-modifying treatments. And so in cancer, even you can still continue to be treated for that metastatic 
you know, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and receive palliative care at the same time. The way that Medicare hospice benefit is currently set up is that one has a prognosis of six months or less. And in many cases, for many diseases, it, you cannot be receiving curative or illness-modifying treatments um, as part of hospice care. Thank you. I'm interested to know, and, and we're going to get a little bit into the findings uh, and the results of the study, but I think I'll ask this question now. So what did your patients and the caregivers think when you approached them about this? Did they think, wait a minute, isn't this hospice? What was their, what was their initial uh, that's reaction? A literal, that's a literal response, yes, sir. Um, we were, our findings were pretty consistent with what nation, national studies are. There's low understanding of the term palliative care and what does that mean. I think 30% of the population generally has even heard of the, the term. And that was similar to what we found. Um, people were gen not really aware of what that term meant. Some caregivers understood it as maybe symptom control, palliate my symptoms, so they kind of heard that term. But when we talked about the hospice term, that was much more clear as we were on death's door mm -hmm. or this is the end here. And so those were some of the quotes that were repeated by patients and their caregivers. So very distinct difference. Hadn't heard the term palliative, but understood what hospice. All right. So let's get into the, to the study itself. So uh, let's start with the primary research questions of the study. And then let's talk about the, the study design. And then we'll come back and talk about the, the findings. So primary research questions, how you did your study, and then we'll, we'll delve into the, uh, to the findings. So uh, yeah. Anand, why don't you take that? Okay. Three primary research questions uh, we wanted to raise were, how do patients with COPD and their family caregivers perceive early palliative care? What are their perspectives on early palliative care needs? And do patients with different levels of COPD severity and symptom burden express different early palliative care needs? Those were the three questions we wanted to address. Okay. And how did you go about studying those questions? You know, so this study is a part of a bigger program we're calling Early Palliative Care and COPD, or EPIC. Um, it, it's, it's part of an interventional intervention development project using the Medical Research Council framework for development of complex behavioral interventions. And so step one of that is often needs assessment. And so you go out and you want to assess what the understanding of a certain uh, problem is. And so we went to the patients and their families first. And this study was a qualitative study of patients with moderate to severe, moderate to very severe COPD and their family caregivers. These patients had a hospitalization for COPD in the prior year, or they had severe dyspnea uh, measured on the MMRC scale. Um, and we recruited those patients and their family caregivers to come to do qualitative interviews. These interviews were done separately, uh, so as to not have influence of each uh, participant. We took about 30, 45 minutes to an hour with each participant and asked some questions that those that I just mentioned. Then we did a thematic analysis to provide a qualitative descriptive analysis of what these themes were, some themes that were emerged that we're, we'll talk about soon, and we presented those in this paper. That's a general high-level uh, overview of what the study design was. Nick, anything else from your perspective you wanted to add? No, I think that's a really great description. You know, it's a qualitative study. It consists of interviews that are recorded and then transcribed. And then um, Dr. Iyer and some other members of the study team went through those transcripts, coded relevant themes, and then came up with um, primary themes that resonated across those different interviews. And how many, how many patients and caregivers did you guys, uh, did you guys enroll? So we had 10 patients and 10 family caregivers. Okay. All right. Let's hear what you found. So please summarize the main findings of your study. And I know you're going you're gonna to talk about some of the broad themes of palliative care that 
that emerge. But we'd really like to get a, a nice overhead of the of the major uh, take home messages uh, from from your study. Let's see if I can do that uh, pretty pretty <laughs> succinctly. Um, we talked about this briefly that palliative care knowledge was limited. So only 30% of the population actually heard of palliative care, but their knowledge of hospice care was greater. Once we described what early palliative care was, patients and their caregivers unanimously accepted that as something they would be interested in receiving. And this acceptance uh, was shared across disease severity. So remember, we had patients with gold two, three, and four COPD. Um, when we got into what needs were, five themes emerged, the most prevalent that existed across all participants, patients and their caregivers alike, was coping with COPD. But another high priority theme that was raised often was emotional symptoms, then respiratory symptoms, illness understanding, and prognostic awareness about where the disease was going. And what was very interesting was that these needs were often shared between both the patients and their caregivers, as well as across the gold stage. So the main um, take home would be that palliative care needs exist beyond just very severe COPD. They're different, but they still do exist earlier. And so early palliative care may be appropriate even for a patient with this uh, with COPD that's in the moderate stage where we may not have or may not have considered it at all uh, for referral to specialist palliative care or any kind of other interventions. So I think that's a big big take home that we need to consider is that these are patients that might be seen by us for primary care, but they're worth um, investigating what those needs might be. And you mentioned that, that, that only 30% of patients had actually heard of palliative care or patients and their caregivers. Where had they heard about it from? Was, was it one of their physicians? Was it through social media, the news? Where, where had they become aware of palliative care? Um, the ones that we talked to that had heard about it had either seen a family member receive it for something else like cancer. Um, they knew what the term meant uh, when it had, you know, they were not all, they had college education that they'd see, heard the term palliative in general, and so they knew what that term meant. Um, so it was a little bit of personal experience uh, with a family member, more than likely. Okay. So five themes emerged. So coping with COPD, emotional symptoms, respiratory symptoms, illness understanding, and prognostic awareness. And interestingly, as you mentioned, the two most common themes were coping with COPD and then the emotional symptoms. I was hoping that, that you and Nick can, can give us some, some examples of, of coping with COPD and what emotional symptoms, what these were in real life. Uh, and then maybe touch on the other three themes uh, as well. So what, what were the specific issues about coping with COPD and emotional symptoms? Mm, so there, the beauty about qualitative research is we can look right at the paper for those qualitative <laughs> examples, right? Nice, and right? so there's a nice figure for figure one. And one of the patients talked about, one of the patient participants talked about working, just working with my hobby. It was everything. After a year, I had to accept this was the new way of life. And this acceptance was really the biggest part. It was different from what I used to lead. And so they hadn't really grasped what living with COPD was going to be like, and they had to develop ways around that to, to continue to cope. And the same went with the family caregiver, that their new normal, this is their new normal, and what did that mean, and what strategies in their life do they have to use to adapt to that? Um, emotional symptoms are something we probably hear all the time. This guy mm -hmm. wanted one guy with an FEV1 of 38% was talking about hunting and fishing all the time, but couldn't do that. And now that was depressing as it gets. Um, and same with the family, that that depression from the patient extended outward. They used to be outgoing and go out and visit with friends, but now they couldn't because they seemed trapped at their home. And that made the depression worse. And then the anxiety worse when their shortness of breath got worse. So those are the kind of examples of 
what we see and what you probably see for other lung diseases as well, but may not, I don't know, talk to them about these things. No, absolutely. And, and I'm just looking at that figure. In fact, yeah, one of the caregivers said about coping with the, with the disease, this is a fact that we both had to face. Anything I can do on my part to make it easier for him, uh, I'm all in, which was, again, very telling. And, and, uh, and the other patient had said, in terms of emotional symptoms, uh, or the caregiver said, I affected me as well. I used to be an outgoing person. I enjoyed talking to people. I like to go places. I like to have fun. I miss going to have lunch with my sisters, and I can't leave the house for more than half an hour because I'm not sure if he may need me to do something for him. So really, I think it underscores the, you know, the real impact of this disease, both, again, on the patient, things that people without lung disease take for granted, but also uh, on the caregiver. So again, yeah, you're right. Those, those quotes are, are really probably as powerful as, uh, as any academic terms <laughs> that we can use. Uh, how, about, how about in terms of respiratory symptoms and illness awareness? And, and one thing I'm interested in is about the prognostic awareness, because that was the sort of the, the least common of the themes. Are you surprised by that? And maybe comment on, on the other two themes as well? I think respiratory symptoms are pretty self-explanatory, but I think it needs to be more so we as clinicians are gauging the impact of these respiratory symptoms. Right. I mean, one, one gentleman talked about just bending over to change the water in his dog bowl. And that story resonated well for me. It's like, that's something we think we really take for granted, but that was his entire day was planning. How does he feed his dog? And so that's what he, the story he relayed to me was, this is what I do all morning is carry gear up the strength to just change this water in this dog bowl. And it, because I'm so short of breath to get to the door, to get to this, to get the water changed and then bending over. So he described that as very significant. And that was something many people talked about. I wish I could get a can of air and give it to me, but it doesn't exist besides my oxygen. Um, the illness understanding, uh, that's just sort of what is COPD. And I think pulmonologists, you know, unfortunately, we may take this for granted. We probably don't um, tell them what this is. And so I have a clinic for predominantly indigent care patients in Birmingham. And mm -hmm. every single patient, I have to spell the word COPD. What, is it, what does that stand for? I ask them. They don't know. And so I think it's, wasn't it surprising to me that perhaps no one's really told them what COPD actually is. And that goes into, well, what does it look like for me going forward? So it wasn't talked about that much, but in terms of frequency, but it was still an important top five priority theme. Good. Nick, your perspectives? Yeah, I mean, just sort of really confirming what's been said about, you know, the, the data really speaking to um, people's difficulty coping with COPD. And, you know, as you look at these quotes, you can really see this relationship between how the respiratory symptoms are sort of that stepping stone barrier to sort of feeling better uh, about oneself. One person described himself that he felt like he was a handicap. And, and really, when you read these transcripts, you can see how they're related in many ways to the symptoms they're experiencing. And they're sort of that root cause there um, is, is disallowing them from feeling better about themselves, from coping better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh. one, thing I think, one thing I think that's important is that this is a patient and family caregiver project. And Nick's are one of our experts at UAB, even nationally, about family caregivers. And I'm just learning how to engage them, both in the clinical setting and then in research as well. And I think it was just eye-opening hearing their side of the story because oftentimes caregivers are called the untapped resource that 
do a lot of brunt work at home for patient care um, and then uh, have a lot of burden put on their shoulders. And we give them a lot as clinicians, but they take on a lot. And so that was what was opening, eye-opening for me was hearing their side of the story. Because I don't think that's very often done um, in the ambulatory setting for COPD research. We've, heard, we've talked about surrogate decision-making in the intensive mm -hmm. care. Right. So that's often done, right? But talk, engaging caregivers in outpatient um, research is, for COPD is not very frequent. And so that was something that I think was interesting and also helpful clinically. So they're taking on a lot, and it's probably important to, to talk to them. Yeah, I can, I can tell you from, from my own personal experience, my, my dad passed away from severe interstitial lung disease a number of years ago, um, and my mother uh, was his caretaker. And I learned, you know, my family, my family experience is probably one of my best teachers about, you know, uh, the things that patients face, but also the caregivers and, and the impact on, on the family. Um, you know, my mother became an expert on oxygen delivery systems and, and giving him insulin for hysteria diabetes. And, and I used to joke that she was probably a better clinician than I was. Um, but, but I really learned that. And, and the emotional toll that takes, even after, you know, the, the patient succumbs to the illness, uh, those, are, those can ex exist for a long time. So I, it's really, uh, you know, both as a, you know, both as a, as a physician and somebody who's been on the other side, this kind of, this kind of insight, I think, becomes invaluable um, to, to us frontline clinicians. Um, so one of the things I found surprising when I read your paper is that only about 30% of the patients rated their quality of life as poor. Were you surprised by that too? It was it was forty percent of patients and twenty percent of their family caregivers. Okay, okay. Um, uh, but a combined thirty percent. Uh, okay. A little bit surprised, but I think there's so many dimensions to quality of life that that it, it's multifactorial what it could be. And again, we did have some people that were less severe COPD, so they were in the moderate stage, and their their palliative care needs may not be mm -hmm. from a quality of life standpoint. They may be something else, okay. um, like illness understanding, prognostic awareness. At that point, it, it could be that, oh my gosh, I got diagnosed with COPD, it's only moderate, but I don't know what the world is going to look like in the next year. So we need to engage in some uh, outlook planning or thinking about what the future mm -hmm. might hold, that it's unknown. But yeah, a little bit surprising. Okay. Nick, how about you? Were you surprised? Um, yes and no. I mean, as Anand was saying, these quality of life measures tap into oftentimes very different dimensions. And so, while sometimes we think of health-related quality of life, really getting a physical symptoms, you know, the measures we were using really taps into other, you know, measures of quality of life, such as social relationships, psychological well-being, spirituality, financial well-being, et cetera. So not all those things all the time are impactful on patients, which is to say you could be very short of breath, but socially you feel very connected. Mm -hmm. uh, spiritually, you still feel like, you know, you're doing well. So um, I think tapping in and looking at different um, subscales of those measures can be helpful to really nail down where people are really struggling. Okay. You also commented in the paper that, that patients with more advanced disease, presumably who've had, uh, who've been burdened with COPD for a more extended period of time, continue to struggle with understanding their illness. And I actually found, I found that quite interesting. Is there a particular issue that they struggle with? Is it that they are finding it difficult to struggle with more disability? What, what about understanding the illness was, it, was continuing to be a challenge for them along the spectrum of their illness? 
I think it's the what comes with COPD. Um, the broad hits you like a freight train kind of symptoms of anxiety, fatigue, depression, frailty, bone osteoporosis, you name it. That's their weakness and their fatigue start to wear on them more. And so one caregiver thought, well, he, he had no idea that this is what COPD was going to look like mm -hmm. in very severe. And this was a caregiver, somebody that lived with the patient who had an FEV1 of 13%. And so they were thinking, oh, my, if I had known that this is what it would look like, I might, my outlook might have been a little bit different, um, that you can't breathe at all. And so it's a bit of what the severity of symptoms are going to look like, um, what other symptoms come with COPD and how that we need to be aware of, like emotional symptoms, fatigue, um, cognitive impairment, things like that. Uh, so, and then, frankly, what, what is emphysema? Right. How does it progress? That, right. What does that mean when my FEV1 goes down by a few milliliters? Right. Does that mean it's 2% decline, but that's a pretty big decline if you don't have anything. So, <laughs> um, so that's the kind of thing. It, it's, it's, mm -hmm. Some of it is just technical terms about emphysema, even despite being very severe and end stage, but also what else exists. So I want to come back to the major theme or the most common theme, I should say, that, uh, that you discussed, and that is coping with COPD. So can early palliative care improve copability in COPD? And then if so, and I think the answer is yes, how, how do you do that? And how do you do that in a real world way? And, and I think this is something Nick can help with as well, give his insight as well. How, how do you make it happen? Can you make it happen? Can you improve copability? And if so, what are the tricks to do that? Or what are the, some, of the, some of the strategies to do that? Oh, good question. I think I might let Nick start on this one. Is that okay, Nick? <laughs> yeah, no So I can speak, so I think the question of, can can coping be um, uh, uh, altered through intervention in COPD is an outstanding question. I think that question has begun to be asked and evidence to support answers that has been done in cancer and perhaps heart failure, but I haven't seen it yet. So in, in cancer, what they have found is that, and this is mostly out of Jennifer Tummel's group um, at uh, MGH, uh, Harvard, Arigel Jawari, and Joe Greer, and that whole research team who does early palliative care and cancer. Some of the things they've reported has they've been able to show that early palliative care tends to lessen behavioral disengagement. And I kind of use a double negative there, which is to say that if people don't engage in sort of health behavior changes, this, and they sort of are more avoidant, this helps them to become more engaging with doing constructive health behavior changes. So they lessen behavioral disengagement and active coping or actively addressing their problems head on tends to be a coping strategy that increases um, when you look at what pal early palliative care is sort of mediated by, when you look at positive effects on quality of life and, and uh, higher risk of survival or um, higher survival over time, that seems to be um, one of those factors that's impacted is, are those types of coping mechanisms. And the thing to add to what Nick said is that coping is harder to teach as the disease progresses. Um, some people are, the literature suggests that it's better to try to insert coping mechanism training earlier in the disease course. So that's the whole point that I worry about. Interventions designed for COPD that are palliative care focused are often in the end stage setting. And that's mm -hmm. hard. That's much harder to not that it can't be done or that I, I think it's definitely worth the try, 
but it's just difficult um, to try to change coping mechanisms in end-stage disease. Rather, that point is to try to do it earlier. Um, and when that is, is still the question. Yeah, building off Anand's point there, if you're getting people when they're in acute symptom distress, like that is their Maslow's hierarchy of needs priority at the moment. Like if I cannot breathe, then forget talking to me about my emotional well-being. Like I want to be able to breathe. Yes. And anyone who's been in a critical care environment will know, like, you know, good luck having a very deep conversation about people's relationships and pasts if, you know, all of a sudden like they can't breathe. That's not that's not the priority, which is why palliative care inserted very late um, is able to do less things related to helping people cope better um, when it's introduced at that time point, because there are just simply different priorities. So, and thank you. Thank you for both of your insights. I, I think those are great. Um, one of the things that, that occurred to me, uh, not only with our, with our experience here at Penn, um, but also in reading through your paper, are there enough trained palliative care providers to meet the needs of COPD patients, especially given the prevalence of the disease and, and you know, the hefty number of patients with, with moderate and advanced disease? Uh, that's a definite no. Um, I think that palliative care has recognized that and is calling for that every day, yeah. the need for more palliative care clinicians. Um, but that doesn't take the onus off of us as pulmonologists, that that's where we have to step in and primary care has to step in about what's called primary palliative care. Um, and that's a layer of training delivered to a subspecialist to handle some palliative care needs that are maybe not seen as less severe. Maybe there's some basic assessment knowledge that these like anxiety, depression are prevalent in 30 to 40% of COPD patients. So maybe we should start screening. There's assessments for caregiver burden and stress and disease knowledge that we can do as pulmonologists beyond what we're trained to do, which is inhalers, NEBS, oxygen, cardiopulmonary rehab, et cetera. There's a layer that we're missing. So it's a bit about and I think that's where it might be the future is that there's a lot more primary palliative care training for clinicians in the earlier stages to start doing. And when things get more tough, that's when the specialists need to be brought on. So you anticipated my next question, which was, you know, what can primary care docs and, and pulmonary docs and pulmonary clinicians do to address some of these needs? And you're right. Um, you know, we focus in on um, what our tasks are, and that is to treat pharmacologically, et cetera. And, and, you know, obviously many of us spend time hearing about the patient's experience. We ask about symptoms, but, but, you know, we do that in the setting of a relatively brief period of time face-to-face -face with the patient. So are there any, um, are there any uh, sort of one or two either points or questions that we should incorporate into our visits? I mean, are there palliative care intentioned questions or, or information to give to the patient and their caregivers in that setting, in, in, an, in an outpatient care setting? Are there opportunities? Are there some things that are just got to haves uh, in patients who have symptomatic COPD? I think some have looked into this. So there's teams out of the UK and Europe that are looking at, it's called the SNAP study team, and they look at an assessment for patients and their caregivers uh, separately that can look into what are the holistic needs of a person with COPD. So there are some instruments being tested and validated and have research behind them um, to assess needs. Uh, if it comes down to what is the question that I would ask somebody, I don't know that yet. 
I think that's because we're still trying to figure it out mm -hmm. from the early standpoint. I definitely think we need to start talking about do you know what COPD is and basic illness education that a lot of us take for granted that provides a lot of uh, relief just to understand what it is. So sometimes it's hitting them like a freight train that you have in, like, severe COPD, but we may take for granted that they know what their disease is. So it's on us to teach them what the disease is, irrespective of the time in clinic. But then it's going to be uh, probable things like advanced directives. Who's your caregiver? Have you made decisions about the future? Um, some of that's the outlook planning. And then I guess I don't, I don't have the answer to what we need to do about anxiety, depression, other symptoms like that in terms of screening. But it's probably something that's going to be worked out soon. And it's been clear to me from my experience that anxiety and or depression is, is almost universal in patients with, with advanced lung disease in general, but, but certainly uh, with COPD. And, and um, you know, I think uh, that's, in, in many cases, the more challenging uh, aspects of this and partnering with, with experts, um, you know, with, who specifically focus on those kinds of things can certainly, I think, go a long way to relieving some of the symptom burden on our patients. Uh, Nick, what do you think? I mean, face-to-face it, it, -face with a patient, from your perspective, um, as, as somebody who does a lot of uh, caregiver and bereavement support services, what, what, what do you think? What would be your recommendation for the clinician? So I want to just disclose that what's been tested in COPD is, is still yet to be developed, and, and Anand's going to just lead the path in that area. When it comes to cancer, some of the things that clinicians could consider um, without being too forceful about it, whenever they're addressing patients and their families' awareness of their illness, some things that have been suggested, and this is um, out of Vicki Jackson and her group have talked about how to assess patients and families' prognostic awareness, asking people, um, what is your sense of what the future holds? You know, what is your sense of what's happening right now? What have you been, what's, what's been told to you about your illness and what to expect? You know, how worried are you about your illness and what is most worrisome? And those questions can get you started uh, on a longer conversation that doesn't have to happen all in one sitting. It can happen over time and that's actually probably better when you're trying to get them to wrap their head around how they're feeling about their illness right now and what they're gonna do in the future regardless of how things actually turn out. Um, have they thought about what happens if their illness gets worse? And that's sort of the beginnings of, you know, really cultivating prognostic awareness on the patient and the family's part. Thank you, that's, that's terrific. So Anand, uh, where are you going from here? Are you planning additional studies? You mentioned that, that this particular publication was, in, was a, a smaller part of a larger research approach. Can you tell us a little bit about what the future is going to hold in this area? Yeah, well, so we just had a manuscript accepted in the Journal of Palliative Medicine that got at the clinician level questions. And so we, uh, we interviewed pulmonologists and palliative care hmm. clinicians about these exact questions and what does early palliative care mean to you and when do we do this? And there were misconceptions abound about on pulmonologist side about what palliative care is and oftentimes even interchange in the middle of a sentence. They call them the hospice people. And so there are, this is a, this, this is a multifactorial problem that begins with a lot of, that can be tackled from the American Thoracic Society standpoint through educational efforts on what is this, what does palliative care mean, um, so the pulmonologists nationwide would understand it better. Then came clinical barriers such as 
when do we do this? What are the referral criteria? Can we achieve consensus on this? So that's something that can be moved forward. Um, and then some operational level barriers to what are the ways that we can insert it into a busy pulmonologist clinic? Perhaps there's better um, delivery models, uh, embedded palliative care or telehealth, those kind of things. So that was, that was an interesting study as well that got published in Journal of Palliative Medicine. But we've also begin the feasibility testing of an intervention for COPD patients and their family caregivers that's nurse-led and telehealth-based, based off of a model from my mentor, Dr. Bakaitis, to get at this question of can, can it be done in, in different stages of COPD, and then what will the outcomes be? So the future holds the Cure Development Awards to try to support the research to, to build the intervention and test it in trial format. A ton of luck with with that endeavor. Uh, so um, as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, again, I just wanted to come back to the one of the first questions I asked you is what is so what what are the main take home messages that our clinicians can take away from your work? One or two, and and Nick, obviously, please chime in. What what should our clinicians? What what's the message they should take away from your from your study? That well, number one is palliative care is appropriate at, at earlier stages than end of life. So. It's not limited to just the last few months of life. It can be done at any point. Two is COPD is a serious illness. I don't think I have to tell a pulmonologist that, but it deserves its place on the ranks. It's the fourth, third to fourth leading cause of death in the United States, so it's definitely something that we should be raising as a concern for, which we do. But the needs exist, and they, these palliative care needs are broad. Coping, emotional symptoms, respiratory symptoms, illness understanding, and prognostic awareness are important. They are shared not just between not, they are shared across disease severity and COPD as early as moderate COPD, and the caregivers also have a lot of these same themes. So it, COPD is impactful not only on the patients and not only in end-stage COPD, but sooner. So interventions that we need to come up with need to start engaging patients earlier. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, there's just a couple of things that folks take home from listening to this. In this study, you know, Anand really found that coping with COPD, emotional symptoms, respiratory symptoms, these were issues that these patients and caregivers expressed. Those very issues are what early palliative care clinicians are trained specifically to deal with. And it may not be the type of palliative care that people are typically familiar with if they're associating with hospice or they're only seeing it in the inpatient setting. In the outpatient setting, those are the very things that palliative care introduced early can assist with. Well said. Any other uh, last thoughts or comments from either of you? No, I think we hit on everything, yeah. yeah I think That's we great. did. All right, well, listen, uh, I wanted to thank you both very much, both Drs. Iyer and Dion Odom for participating in the podcast. And, and I hope that our listeners enjoyed the discussion about palliative care and COPD as much as I did. So until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you very much for listening.